Brought to you by the Cabell County Public Library. Between Two Shelves brings you a new look on the day-to-day -day life of a library. From youth services to circulation and beyond, our episodes will lend you the world here at the Cabell County Public Library. Hello everyone and welcome to a brand new episode of Between Two Shelves. I'm your host Jake and today I'm joined by two guests, David Owens from our reference department and our special guest, Dr. Cicero M. Fain III. Dr. Fain is a native of Huntington, West Virginia. He received his bachelor's in political science and journalism from the University of Hawaii at Manoa and his master's in education curriculum and instruction from George Mason University. He's a recipient of the Carter G. Woodson Fellowship from Marshall University. He received his master's and his PhD in history from the Ohio State University. His teaching career includes positions at Marshall, Ohio University Southern, Niagara University, and the College of Southern Maryland. He has authored several articles in peer-reviewed journals, include Buffalo Soldier, Deserter, Criminal, The Remarkable Complicated Life of Charles Ringo, in the Ohio Valley Journal, his current book project as well. His first book, Black Huntington, an Appalachian Story, published in 2019 by the University of Illinois Press, was a finalist for the Appalachian Studies Association Weatherford Award. In 2021, the West Virginia Library Association awarded him the Literary Merit Award. In 2021, he returned to Marshall as the inaugural visiting diversity scholar. He is currently the assistant provost for inclusive excellence and the diversity, equity, and inclusion fellow. Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Jake. Happy to be here. Our first question really does deal, most of our questions do really deal with Black Huntington and Appalachian story. And the first one is at the beginning of the book, you discuss a relationship between the slave and the master in the area of Cabell County and how it differed from other areas of the state that would eventually become West Virginia. How did that relationship affect the former slaves after emancipation? A very good question. Thank you. I think the, the nature of Cabell County's geography, uh, the dispersed nature of the, of the slave population, was what's different, what made Cabell County different. Uh, it was a small, in, in conjunction with Jefferson County or Kanawha County, smaller slave population, I think in the aftermath of the Civil War, given the dispersed nature of the population, given the fact that they really hadn't had an opportunity to really travel far, them remained comfortable, at least for some time, remaining in the general area. I think that's what the book shows out. At a certain point in time, so in essence, then they weren't necessarily compelled to leave by the, by the, the, the destruction of the area or, or the... Um, um, maybe associated with violence or anything like that, they could take some time, reflect upon what they wanted to do next, maybe connect to family members within the area. Some definitely went out and explored the Ohio Valley to some extent. Of course, the men were the population that did that the most. But I think we find the evidence shows that many, um, there was some out-migration for sure, for sure. Uh, but many decided to stay around and build homesteads, raise their families, including a guy dot, including Barbersville, and then eventually, once Huntington gets founded and starts to, to, um, to rise as a, uh, as a manufacturing industrial center and a social cultural center, black people would then relocate to, to Huntington. Mm -hmm. Well, that brings us to our next question of, you know, what's the historical importance of Carter G. Woodson? Well, Carter G., I think, is an arguably the most, I would say, the most important historian of the 20th century. 
raised, what, born in, in New Canton, Virginia, after his parents had come to, to Huntington and decided to go back for some time, gets a rudimentary education in New Canton, works on the farm. The farm is successful, but not really wildly so with his, with his siblings. Then decides at a certain point in time that there's not sufficient financial gain available where he's working, so he goes to the coal mines in southern West Virginia. And while there, he meets a, a gentleman who recognizes that he has, that Carter G. has some education, and then en, en, enlists him, recruits him to read to the fellow miners. And, and Carter G. then realizes that the power of education, the power of literacy, the power of giving back to the community, and then also realizes that uh, he wants to pursue and continue his education. And the only, well, he has family already in, in the Huntington area, and so he decides to come to Douglas High, the only black high school within the region, or certainly within the area. I want to, don't know about the region, but he decides to come to Huntington. Certainly he's got family here, so that's a draw, that's an incentive. Comes and becomes a student. I think he enrolls at the age of 17 or 18 at Douglas and graduates within two years then uh, leaves to Southern West Virginia to, become a, to get his first teaching job, I believe Kaiser perhaps, West Virginia, or Kimball, but then returns back to become the principal. And so the formative experiences I would suggest that Carter G. Uh, has in Huntington are, are critical to understanding his, his metamorphosis as a, as a historian, as, an, as a scholar, as, a, as an author, as a cultural icon. And so he would become the second, after stints at, I believe, at Berea, at the University of Chicago, the Sorbonne, uh, Harvard. He would become the second African-American after, uh, after uh, W.B. Du Bois to get his Ph.D., but the first of slave parentage to get his Ph.D. And then from there, you know, he would established the Association for the Study of Negro Life, which we now call the Association for the Study of African-American Life and History, uh, the largest scholarly organization in the world that deals with African-American history and culture. Uh, and then, of course, would establish Negro History Week, which would then evolve into what we call Black History, African-American History Month now. I think he published somewhere between 33 books and mon monographs along the way. Just a remarkable, remarkable career. And so uh, the fact that we can claim him as a fixture within Huntington is important. Absolutely. So Huntington is established because of the railroad, obviously, in 1871, especially considering it's named after one of the largest railroad magnets in the sure. country at the time. Sure. So in construction of those railways and tunnels leading into Huntington, there's obviously going to be a lot of uh, white workers on it as well as black workers as well. Mm-hmm. What were the effects of the working conditions on the relationships between the black and white workers? I, I think it's, I don't know. It's interesting. There's a there's interesting dynamic that's going on because the black workers were managed, supervised by f many of them by former Confederate officers. Yeah. So that's going to create a really interesting dynamic there. But black laborers were needed. In fact, were, I think, uh, very much coveted. As, as, as a labor force by, the, by Carlos uh, P. Huntington. And certainly you, ha you have poor whites who are pouring into the area, seeking gainful employment with the railroad as well. And I think for the most part, 
they operated within separate spheres of, of, uh, of existence. I don't necessarily recall in my research any, any major racial flare-ups that took place between the workers. I think each of them realized that they had to operate within certain proscriptions and that, and that the, the primary goal was to, to keep employment. It should also be said that they are shifting, certainly for, for many blacks, this is their first experience with the capitalistic system. And so that is, that is requiring an adjustment as well. They got to be mindful about what that means. If you want to, if you want to make a dollar, you want, you, well, then you have to abide by the rules by which you can get that dollar. Now, with that being said, that doesn't mean that they were powerless because there, I, my book does chronicle at least a couple of instances in which black workers said, we're going to avail ourselves of, of our own um, what, initiative, let's say. We're not going to work on Christmas. You know, we're going to leave early. We're not going to work at, under these conditions. And so they, there was some agency demonstrated within that confining work environment. And so that's important to have some sense of agency, to not be clearly used as, as um, what, fodder is important to recognize. At a certain point in time, you had roughly 5,000 black workers working in, in close proximity to Huntington. That gives you some sense then of, of uh, the value uh, that, they, that they brought, uh, their labor um, that they brought to the railroad and how, ne and how necessary it was. And then after the railroad, they would settle into uh, towns and villages in the hollers, you know, along the railroad after the construction through the New River Valley and change the cultural, the social, cultural, um, political climate um, uh, that existed uh, along the railway. It, it, the, to what extent they impacted, I mean, th those are minor, minor examples. In a big picture, black workers on the railroad, as well as when they when we shift to the, the, the development of Huntington as an urban, urban industrial center, they're trapped at the bottom of the occupational ladder. Yeah. And so that's the truth of the matter. They're going to have to deal with that. They will find innovative ways to circumvent it and build households, black institutions, and become citizens uh, as, as best they can. But it would, it was, they faced some significant headwinds in those, in those aspirations. I thought one of the one of the intriguing things <clears throat> that comes through the text is how when you when you're talking about the um, the bottom run of the economic ladder and and, and the, the peculiar and specific circumstances that were foisted upon the, the black population, how important home ownership yeah. comes to be regarded as yeah. a, as a means of saying, hey, look, this is a this is a step, but this is the import what, the important step. Mm. Right, actual ownership yeah. of property. Yeah, thanks, David. I mean, it, it's um, it, we got to remember that the first generation of black workers who migrate to the city to the, are are in large measure illiterate, uh, impoverished, mm -hmm. mere years removed from from their enslavement, and so there's there are going to be some significant challenges they're going to face in adjusting to a new a new uh, location, new town, putting down roots establishing black institutions. They didn't have the wherewithal, I think, to think about buying home or property at that time. There were too many other adjustments being that were necessary, that were required. 
Um, when we get to the really the second generation around the late 1890s, early 1900s, when we have the, 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 the development of what I call a, a professional class, and that first generation has acquired some level of formal education. You know, the, the, the cousins of um, the Woodsons, Reverend Nelson Barnett, before Huntington, excuse me, before Douglas was established, they actually got, they had to go to Ohio to get uh, yeah. an education, to, to Ironton. And so that gives you some idea then of how important education was to, to, the, to their aspirations. But by the time we get to really the latter part of, like I said, the, the, the first part of the 20th century, there's a growing recognition that we can't impact society politically, we're trapped at the bottom of the occupational ladder. And so perhaps the one way that we can move forward is, is concentrate on the homestead, the domestic arena, shoring that up, engaging in moral behavior, what we call racial uplift. We raise the race up through, through adhering to pillars, maxims of good citizenship. But one thing that they do realize is that, look, our money can be used to purchase property, which will give us a toehold Within the, uh, within the Huntington's growing econ economy um, and also solidify our financial status. And so increasingly, um, home ownership becomes the primary goal to move up the economic ladder. And so by the time we get around to 19, let's say 1924, I believe, interestingly enough, there's an interracial group led by uh, black and white, I would say, black community members and white uh, pastors. And they decide that we're going to, they're going to coalesce their efforts and they're going to bypass the building and loan associations, which were very much disproportionately placing high interest rates on the purchase of homes and lots. And so this interracial coalition, by this time, I think, within a short time, have purchased uh, 67 homes and lots. And by 1924, Huntington, Huntington's black population has the highest percentage of home ownership of any city in the state. R roughly 60% of homes, of the population own homes, aggregating about $1,400,000 in total worth. I mean, amazing figures. The Woodsons and the Barnetts are one of those first families that arrive here with the first wave of black migration have acquired a number of properties as well So as they move forward. And so you have really a, a evidence of increasing affluence that is, that is spreading throughout black Huntington. And, and I, would give, I would certainly say that the evidence is growing number of churches as evidence of, this, of the, the wealth being dispersed, uh, not only amongst the professional class, but amongst the black working class as well. And so you, you have a, a, I would consider a dynamism, vibrant black community that is attractive for folks, not only within the tri-state region, but also for folks from outside the region who want the, the access to modern conveniences, who want access to, to, to shopping, uh, who want access to recreation, who want access to, to black community engagement, fraternal organizations and all those things. So uh, to me, it would have been a really fantastic time to live in the city, to, to be a part of that. Right. 
I'm going to take over from Jake now on the on the questions. The prevailing historical nar narrative of American history is that the civil rights movement starts in the 1950s and 60s, and I I would contend, and not just me, obviously clearly, that that's a narrative established by the dominant majority, um, and clearly the civil rights movement is born way before it's mm -hmm. recognised by white America. Mm -hmm. I was struck by how much the efforts of Huntington's early black community paved the way for later activism through informal structures and in some cases more formal associations. How important do you think the contribution of Huntington's early African American community is in laying the groundwork for civil action later in the century or is there indeed a correlation hmm. or is that something that's yeah. overplayed? I wow, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's an excellent question. I would contend that there is a correlation. I think in combating restrictive covenants, for instance, which I talk about in the book. White v. Uh, white. Oh, sorry? White v. White. Yeah, white yeah. versus, yeah, white yeah. v. White, the, the, the ironically <laughs> named court case um, in which, you know, restrictive covenants are stuck down not only in Huntington, but statewide mm -hmm. is, is an exemplar of the power of not only community activism, but interclass community activism. You know, it was the working class combined with the, the professional class, you know, the middle class. The, 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 so it's important to realize that these two classes came together to formulate strategy to, to figure out who, best, who was best equipped to lead this, this court case by reaching out to the uh, then head of the NAAC, state head of the NAACP, to, who was a lawyer, to, to lead the effort. And so I think it's, for me, it's really important that the black working class are participants, are drivers in this. So it just wasn't some middle class goal that was only going to impact the middle class because unquestionably, removing restrictive covenants at a time in which they're growing wealth amongst the black population offers opportunities for those who, have, who are aspirational and strategic to also move up the economic ladder and so and to live where they want to live as opposed to being told where to live. And so I would say, yes, there is a correlation there. Okay. That white versus white case is, I mean, that's, that's a big deal. That, that, yeah. That, that's a remarkable piece of legislation. Yes. Given the region, given the time. Yes. Um, anyone should, should read your book just to learn about that. Well, thank you. That, that thank is, you. Uh, that is really an astonishing. Well, I, I think it is. It, it is. It was just one example in which black people engaged in innovative, innovative efforts to challenge their status quo, to challenge, to challenge Jim Crowism, by going into the public space, for instance. Yeah. You know, we're, we're, we're not going to. You're not going to lock us in to spaces that you want us to lock us into. No, we're going to figure out a way to go where we want to go, and we're not going to be beholden to these kind of strictures and mechanisms of Jim Crowism. And so there are multiple, I think, multiple examples that I give in the book, which black people are pushing the envelope. They're agitating for the full rights of their citizenship. And so, and I think they, they achieve it in large measure. They, they do push into the to public arena. They do buy homes and circumvent the system that is, that is trying to, to lock them in. They do engage in legal uh, maneuvering that allows them to, to win a, an important court case. And so these are, I think, examples of a, a kind of intellectual 
engagement, uh, reflective thinking, in, in engaging in ingenious and innovative methods. Okay, these are these are the, the traps that are set in front of us. How do we circumvent them? How do we go around them? How do we step through them or, or whatever? And I think overwhelmingly I demonstrate that they, they were successful in many of those in, engagements and endeavors. Mm-hmm. So do you, do you see a connection between you know, that movement to push the envelope with the fact that that idea of black citizenship is just already when West Virginia is created is already in their state constitution? I don't know. I mean, that's my, I don't know to what extent black people were, well, I would contend that black people didn't come here for the franchise. Yeah. They came here for economic uh, opportunity. And increasingly, I think in Kelba County, they realized that the power, the numbers just don't allow them to have political power, political clout. You know, maybe McDowell County is is the best example, which you have sufficient numbers to to engage in a political arena and an affect political change. There's, that doesn't exist in Huntington in large measure. So they've got to figure out other ways to, if as best they can, to foresee the the full rights of their citizenship. Increasingly, they look at perhaps switching parties. You know, they go to the Socialist Party route to maybe switch shift from being a Republican to a Democratic to a Democratic Party, ultimately, and they actually think about starting their own party. But ultimately, I don't. none of them are viable alternatives. Nothing can replace numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a challenge that we even have today in the city and in the state. You know, you have to have sufficient numbers to be able to have a political voice. Yeah. And if you don't have the numbers, guess what? You can be ignored, and you will be ignored. That's that would be my take on it. Yeah. I'd like to hear a little bit more about the sources that you used for this text, because you mentioned um, how difficult it is to gather some primary source material, especially for certain economic sectors of the growing African American community at the time. How much did this hinder what you wanted to do with the text, and how indeed did you overcome it? Yeah, it, it was, I just you had to cast a net far and wide, uh, and deep and broad. Um, you know, I am, you know the the. The truth of the matter is, I think there's a there's a great bounty of sources, source material out there. Mm-hmm. No one had really done a coalesce. No, no one had done a comprehensive look at it. They were discreet. They were independent. They were locked here, there, and everyone. You know, when I started looking at a, the, the comprehensive nature of of my vision of the, of the book, uh, of the dissertation, really, I just figured let me travel as far and wide as possible. Certainly the fact that I'm from the community, know the community members, gave me some entree into source material that others might not have had uh, access to, to to get oral testimonies. And the the truth of the matter is I couldn't do the book now. I couldn't do the book the same way now because folks have died. Mm -hmm. And so I I could certainly do the book, but it would be a different book. I mean, part of this is, you you know this, David, that part of this is um, somewhat informed speculation or, or an intuition, you know that that there may be sources out there, and so you just got to take a leap of faith. Mm-hmm. I mean, that goes really back to chapter two of my book about the Grapevine Telegraph. I didn't really know if there was a a, a Grapevine Telegraph. I didn't know if there was a migratory path that that existed from Lewisburg, White Sulphur Springs into into the area. Or what that what that migratory path would have been, or what what the the nature of the slave 
experience was at White Sulphur Springs until I started just, I had the question and let's go find answers. And so you, you go, you go far and wide and try to find, and then, you know, most, most of the time it's, it's a shot in the dark Mm -hmm. and you come away empty, but every now and then you get lucky and uh, you build and you, you coalesce and you focus and then you back up the research with other supporting documentation and then it is sufficiently convincing persuasive that you move forward with it i mean the good thing is for me uh it not only was the cabo huntington library as a as a major resource because there was a treasure trove of archival information here documents here but marshall had a, a treasure trove and so there, those were two major players that I could tap into, at least to give me a foundation. And then you go from there. Sh- yeah, indeed. Shameless plug for the James E. Castle. There you go. Local yes. Of <laughs> I'm <laughs> we're doing the interview in here. Yes. <laughs> I, I did notice some city directory information. And some Most definitely. Most definitely. Most there. definitely. I, I'd like to finish up, uh, Dr. Fame. Um, I'm, I'm one of the things that I'm interested in um, in reading history is the sort of coming together of history and mythology, because I think I think myth is such an important part of history. Was there, was there anything in your research that contradicted some of the local community stories that you had heard growing up, or did it reinforce it? I think more so it reinforced it. Okay. I mean, there was not one particular event, development person that was like, wow, this, this person didn't exist or didn't do this. It was more as if it was more about the kind of just weight of of the of the evidence, you know, of of the of the broad sense that this there was a population and a history of of folks doing innovative things. If if tell you the truth, if if the truth of the matter is, I think I discovered and respect more mm-hmm. what they did. Now, I've got, you know, when I say that, I'm, there's also the challenge of making sure that I don't romanticize mm-hmm. this, the, these, these people, this, this, this story. So I always had to temper that with, with the source material, make sure it aligns, make sure I'm not, I'm not going too far afield. But, I, you know, if nothing else, I have a much broader and a deeper affection and appreciation for, for what these people did. There was no Freedmen's Bureau to help them out. And they, mm-hmm. when they're first coming here, they are literally pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. They are engaging in entrepreneurial activities, community endeavors to move their community forward at a time in which they were really not supported by the state, really not supported by the city. And so they've got to figure out how to do this. And in a new place, I mean, literally in a, in a new land, in a new era, as they are grappling with not only relocating and and building anew, but adjusting and adapting and acculturating to a new capitalistic system that is going to demand of them things that they that hadn't been that they hadn't yet experienced hadn't experienced previously. And so I have just the utmost respect for the journey, for their accomplishments. You know, we can talk about C.C. Barnett Mm -hmm. and his hospital, one of the one of only six black surgeons accredited in the nation 
to teach surgeons. Uh, we can talk about his wife who starts a nursing school, one of only few, a handful, from what I understand, that is accredited to teach nurses. The intellectual energy that, that exists in this place. I mean, Carter G. Woodson. I mean, gosh, moving forward, these are just the, these are, you know, the, the, the giant trees. But there are other folks there. For sure. Other folks there who are who are engaging in who are using their brains, who are figuring out ways to not only move themselves, their family, the community forward, but attempt who are figuring out ways to navigate Jim Crowism. What they what what West Virginia euphemistically uh, called benevolent segregation. Polite uh, racism. Yes, polite racism, yeah. benevolent segregation, and so, you know. It's just to me, it's a remarkable, remarkable story, and and I hope I don't, you know, I hope I don't romanticize it too much. I really do think that these people uh, have accomplished some 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 great things. It's a unique story. I think the the reviews and in, in the peer reviews journals have been very complimentary about it and have pinpointed the exceptionality of the black experience here. It, it's a micro history that I think is is worthy and pays proper homage to. To, to Black Huntington at a time in which there were significant challenges. Well, I, I agree. It is a unique story, and it is brilliantly told. And for the just for the reading, I, I was thinking while he was saying that, the sheer relentless energy of Dr. Barnett, because I'm, I'm assuming that at every step of the way, the initial thing is, no. Sure. You, you won't be able to do that. Sure. You won't, be able, you won't get the support for that. And yet, this is... This is a teaching hospital. Yes. This is a, a a place where people from the eastern seaboard come to be educated. Yes. Yeah. And it, it is something that the building stands there today. Yeah. And people, I'm sure many folk drive past it without having a clue sure. what sure. its legacy is. That's why, that's what I lament in coming back is that we really haven't done, the city, you know, the community, hasn't done a, a good job of supporting these historic venues, making them, making them, to keep them sustained, really. I worry that, you know, what happened with the Colored, colored Orphans Home mm-hmm. will happen with some of these yeah. other venues, yeah. and that would be a real shame. Yeah. Um, I wasn't here when the Colored Orphans Home was torn down. It is an irreplaceable loss. Yeah. And, you know, my hope is that sufficient capital, sufficient talent, Will will realize that Huntington will never reach its fullest renaissance until we really commit to supporting these these African American venues and sites sufficiently, and to and hopefully as a part of a African American heritage tourism sector within Southern West Virginia that will be a, a destination place. Yeah, yeah. Those are all the questions we have for you today. Thanks again for joining us, and we're looking forward to seeing what's coming out next. That you have thanks, thanks, Jake. Thanks, David. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks. <laughs>